So if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to open it up to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 is where we're going to be this morning. We're starting a multi-week series uh, going through the book of Revelation. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time going through it, actually. Uh, And if you're thinking to yourself, wow, if we do this three verses at a time, we're going to be here for a while. But um, we're not, I promise. I just want to make sure we get the groundwork laid, which is why we're starting with the first three verses this morning. How many of you here have seen Jurassic Park or any of the subsequent movies uh, that came after that? I don't know how many there are, six or seven it seems like, uh, have existed throughout uh, all different Jurassic Park variations. Uh, So you know that movie, right? You know kind of the feeling you got when you were maybe a kid the first time you saw it. When I was a kid, first time I saw the original one in the 90s, uh, you know, it was like a completely like new thing. I'd never seen anything like it. Um, I remember being legitimately scared a few times during the movie. Um, kind of a jumpy fella anyway. Uh, and so I remember as we left the movie theater that evening, uh, thinking that, you know, the T-Rex was just going to pop around a building at any time um, um, because they, it was so real. You know, you go back now and you can see the CGI and stuff, but then it seemed so real and so in your face and such a great thriller of a movie. Right? That's probably the, the genre that we would put it in, right, is thriller. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to start with a video of Jurassic Park reimagined as something completely different. And so imagine you're sitting in a theater and you have, you know, where the trailers, the movie previews show up, uh, and this is the one you see. So Dave, if you want to go ahead and start that. Mashable Nature invites you to an incredible island where life finds a way. Welcome to the world of dinosaurs. Meet Little Tail. Be there for her birth. Watch as she takes her first steps. And follow her journey as she discovers the world. From Mashable Nature, comes a story we all live of being born, growing up, and surviving in a dangerous world. Mashable Nature's Raptors. Such a cute wildlife documentary, right? Now, does that remind you anything at all of the Jurassic Parks that you've seen in the theaters or in your, your own home? Of course not, right? Because Jurassic Park is, again, a thriller. That's the category that we would put that movie in. Um, one that leaves you, again, jumping. Plus, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but there were zero human characters in that trailer, right? Now, Jurassic Park, for all of the fanfare that the dinosaurs get, which they certainly deserve, it's a pretty key element uh, of the books and uh, the movies that have come out since that book, um, it's still a human story, right? Uh, it still follows a particular set of characters around, and of the story, if there is one, is a reflection over what humanity can do when we think we are all-powerful uh, and that we can manipulate things and things go badly uh, when people often react, uh, when people act that way with nature, right? It's kind of the, the moral of the story. But again, watching that, 
you would have no idea about any of the human characters. You would have no idea about the kind of movie that you're walking into if you went into the theater and sat down to watch any one of the different iterations of the Jurassic Park series because it was completely misrepresented It's something else, a different category and a different main character. The raptors are an important part of the storyline, but they're not the main character. That's often what we do in a lot of ways with the book of Revelation in the church is we have turned it into something else that it's not. Uh, we have misrepresented the kind of book it is, the kind of story it is, even the genre of literature that it is, and we have made it about something other than the main character. And so as we start out this series on the book of Revelation, I want to go back to the main thing, the center of the story. Revelation is written by Jesus, about Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. This is something I want us to remember as we read through the entire book. Revelation is written by Jesus, about Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. And if we can understand it through that lens, it will help us as we walk through understanding the entire book. Consider the way that pop culture often represents this book. Consider any of the one of myriad of movies that you've seen of some sort of apocalyptic war at the end of times. Uh, I think of the old Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, end of days movie. You know, that kind of being uh, one version of the way that the book of Revelation is often represented uh, in pop culture. There's another one with Nicolas Cage called Knowing that some of you may have seen. And it kind of gives this, it's all about the battle. It's all about the explosions. Kind of like the Michael Bay version of Revelation, right? It just turns it into this big action flick rather than what's actually going on behind the scenes and what really we ought to be learning. Now, I want to go over just a few misconceptions before we dive in that might seem like ticky-tack, but I want you to hear them because I think they're important for a reason. First of all, and this wasn't, is going to seem the most ticky-tack, but I think it's important for us to note that when we talk about the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are talking about a singular revelation. Hey, this is not revelations. I know that's, that's something that maybe some of you have said, something that I grew up saying. And again, I don't want like, you to feel like terrible or anything like that. If that's what you're feeling, forget that. I just want to tell you why it's important that we understand that this is a singular revelation. Uh, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not a collection uh, of different revelations and different visions. This is a vision that the Apostle John received while on the island of Patmos about things to come, right? Uh, it is about Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. And so we want to make sure we understand it as a singular revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Another maybe mixed message or way that we've misinterpreted or misunderstood this book is that it's a horror movie or it's a horror script that we ought to be scared or frightened by the content of its pages. Um, that was not the case in the beginning, I believe. Uh, that was not God's intent, I would argue, in delivering the book to John for him to share with all of us to scare us to uh, lead to us coming, again, kind of the Hollywood representation of this big, scary event that's going to happen. I mean, we've developed a whole genre of literature and movies called post-apocalyptic movies or stories, right? After there's been some big battle, I think all the way back like, to the 80s with Mad Max and then all the different movies recently that have been made that are post-apocalyptic, there's been some big battle and everybody in, in society is trying to put things back together as if we're going to come back from the battle of Revelation, but whatever. Uh, but that's kind of what's been focused on uh, and, and turned into a scary, frightening narrative. To the degree, I think, that many of us in our Christian walks 
are afraid to really dive into the book because of the scarier parts of it uh, or because we've been told that it's so confusing, right? Uh, that, it's, that it's so frustrating because there's so many different ways to take all of the different symbols and all of the different messages throughout the book of Revelation. So we think to ourselves, I'll just leave it alone. And I'll admit and confess to that being a reality, even from my own pastorate here. This is the first time I will ever have preached through a lot of the passages in Revelation. I preached through the seven churches uh, and some different passages, 21 and 22, about heaven. Uh, but as far as the whole book, haven't ever done that. So this is going to be the first time we do that together because we kind of have that hands off. It's, it's, it's scary. It's frightening. Here's what Revelation was meant to be from the beginning, though. It, it is group of seven churches in Asia Minor who lived the Christian life under Roman occupation and persecution. Uh, this is at the really bad part of the Roman Empire coming against all of Christendom and trying to squash out the Christian influence and in what they were doing. Uh, and so uh, Nero probably is the Caesar at the time. You've heard that name. Uh, you, you know he's infamous for a reason, uh, partly because of the way that he persecuted Christianity. And so we have Christians trying to grow and flourish and maintain their faith in this culture. And so Jesus is sharing this message through an angel to John, who is then supposed to share it to the church at large to remind them that no matter what happens, no matter what goes on in the world, there is something else going on behind the scenes, and it is Jesus continually winning the victory that he will win in eternity forever and ever and ever. Like no matter how bad things look from our worldly perspective, there is something else going on behind the scenes from a spiritual perspective where Jesus is always on his way to final victory and winning the battle. So it's not scary. It's meant to be comforting to us as believers, to remind us, no matter where we find ourselves, in the story of human history, that Jesus is always victorious. One last misconception is that this book has often been treated as if it is solely to be looked at as a roadmap to the end of time. That's leaving out a good chunk of church history if that's all this book is for. If it's solely a roadmap for the end of time, then the only people that this book would really matter to were not the seven churches that existed on earth at the same time that John did, not you and I, unless we are in the final generation of the church, uh, no other generation of the church between ourselves and when John first wrote this, the only people that this book would matter to if it was solely a roadmap for the final days would be those alive on the earth during the final days. And everybody else, John, the Jesus, through John, had a message to share with the people on earth at the time, with you and I, and with the people on earth at the end. Again, Revelation is written by Jesus, about Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. We must maintain this understanding throughout our entire study of this book. So before we jump into the introduction, verses 1 through 3, let's pray together once again. Father, we thank you for your spirit here this morning. God, we thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And that, God, you are still using your word to pierce our hearts, to separate bone from marrow, and to turn us inside out so that you might deal with things going on within us. God, as we each carry a busy week into this room, Lord, I pray that you focus solely on you, so that you might do a work of transformation within and through us. 
God, that we might encounter you through your holy word and that we might be different and closer to you because of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel, his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The word, revelation. In the Greek, the article gets attached to the word, so it's literally the first word in this Greek writing. And you, oftentimes, pieces of literature in that day were given their title simply by taking the first line of the book. And so the revelation is the first one we have. Let's talk about that word for just a second. That word is the same word that we would call apocalypse. It's apocalypsis in Greek. It's the same word where we get our apocalypse. And when we think of apocalypse, we think of a final battle right? Uh, we think of an apocalyptic event uh, that changes the world or that ends the world, some calamitous thing uh, that would bring all that we know to a sudden and destructive end. That's what we often think of when we think of the word apocalypse. Now, there's some connotation about the end with the idea of an apocalypse, but the word itself doesn't mean that. The word itself means to be revealed, or to be unveiled, uh, to have the curtain pulled back. And so when there's an apocalypse like this one, the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it is pulling the curtain back. It is revealing Jesus. So we're being told from the very beginning what this book is about. It is so that you might see through our worldly perspective into a spiritual perspective and see Jesus and the battle going on around us at all times for who he is and what it really is. To be had to have that revealed to all of us. Like I said, it does carry the connotation of end time things, but the, the, the word itself means to be unveiled. In verse 3, John, uh, we also learn that this book is a prophecy, a prophetic book. Uh, now, prophecy can be a couple of different things in Scripture. Uh, it can be a foretelling, which means you're telling about events that will happen. Uh, such as Isaiah 53 uh, being a prophecy of the nature of Jesus' Messiahship, uh, the way that Jesus would fulfill the role of being Messiah as the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 foretells that event happening, right? Uh, and so it's, it's something, it's saying this will happen and then it comes to pass. Uh, that is prophetic writing. And so Revelation is that in part. It is telling us about things that are going to happen. Um, we can make the argument that it's telling us about some things that have already happened, uh, but it is telling us about things in the future from its perspective. But there's also the idea in prophecy of foretelling, uh, meaning that uh, the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, when they would speak on behalf of God, they weren't necessarily telling the future, but they were still being prophetic. When they would say, thus saith the Lord, uh, and then they would fill in whatever God told them to say. Uh, they were calling on God's people, usually to some sort of major change, uh, because God's people had gotten out of line. And so the prophets would come and say, this is what God says needs to happen. And that too, is prophecy. And so we take 
as both of those, right? Uh, as forth, foretelling events that are going to happen, uh, and then forthtelling uh, events, or, or excuse me, the perspective, God's perspective on the events that are happening and how we need to react God's word to us then. Let me give you a biblical word on prophecy. Second Peter 1.19, Peter writes these words about the nature of prophecy. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, according to Peter, prophecy is like a lamp in a dark room, is that it shows us not the entire detail of all the things that are to come. I already alluded to Isaiah 53 being a prophetic uh, word about how Jesus would fill the role of the Messiah. What Isaiah 53 doesn't do is give us the exact time and date that Jesus would be born. Uh, what Isaiah 53 did do is to give us uh, the names of other characters in the story, like Pilate uh, or Caiaphas or some of the others that would take Jesus down the road toward his crucifixion. Uh, it didn't give us all of the details. And prophecy usually, in, in a lot of cases, then is we only understand it from hindsight when we're looking back on it to see the way that God fulfilled his word. Um, but it's not that, that, that pristine, every detail is pointed out. Instead, it is a lamp in a dark room. It shows us the things that are to come, not as clear as we might like them to be, but it allows us to prepare for the next step, at least, like a lamp would in a dark room. Or imagine having a lamp and going down a dark path. You don't see the entire path, but you see what's coming right in front of you, and you're prepared and ready to make the next step. Until the day dawns, until we see clearly, until the future actually becomes the present, the prophecy prepares us in that way. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That can mean a couple of different things. First, Jesus is the subject. He's the one telling us the story. Or it can mean that Jesus is the object. He's the one that the story is about. Or, in my estimation, it's both of those things. Jesus is both subject and object. He is the subject of the story, the one telling the story, and he's the object of the story, the, about the, the person about whom the story uh, centers on. Uh, and so we can say again, as I said earlier, that the, the revelation of Jesus Christ is by Jesus, about Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. He is at the center of everything. And we get this message from Jesus through the angel to John, but ultimately, as it says in the first three verses, this message came from God himself. And so in the revelation of Jesus Christ, then, we see a God's eye picture of reality. We're not seeing things described in a worldly way. We're seeing things described in an otherworldly way. So when we read on in the story, and we see John looking, he's searching for the right word to describe what he's seeing. Uh, such as when he hears the voice of God and he's trying to describe the sound that he's hearing, which mighty rushing waters or the sound of a loud trumpet. Uh, we shouldn't take that literal that it actually sounds like a trumpet. What we should understand is that John is doing his best and he's thinking of the loudest things on earth that he can possibly think of and that's the only thing he can relate it to. He is describing a heavenly reality in earthly terms the best that he can. And towards the end of the book, when he sees the new heaven and the new earth, uh, the heaven that we'll, we'll all enjoy someday and live in, again, he picks out the, the most precious stones that can be imagined, not necessarily because those exact stones are going to be in heaven, and maybe they will, but John could also be just reaching for the most beautiful things he could think of because he's trying to describe a spiritual reality in an earthly way. He has seen behind the veil. And for those of us who haven't, he's trying to describe to us what is indescribable. 
what words cannot equate. And so when John is reaching for words, it looks that way it's because, well, I think he is indeed reaching for words because he is seeing a God's eye picture of reality. John himself is the storyteller for us. He's the servant. He gets the message through an angel, again, telling us about the spiritual nature of this message, that not only is it written by God, it's handed by God to an angel, to John, mediated through another spiritual being so that John might be able to understand exactly what's going on. An angel, in this case, is a spiritual being, a messenger, a supernatural being to pass on the message to God, excuse me, to John. So the revelation of Jesus Christ presents a spiritual way of looking at reality that transcends our physical reality. And it's for the servants. It's for you and I. John himself, he's called servant here in this passage. He is the lot that this book is written for. All the saints of the church throughout space and time, you and me included, we are the recipients of this book. The revelation of Jesus Christ reminds the church of its heroes' inevitable victory so that it, the church, might be prepared for inevitable difficulties. Again, it's to bring us hope, not to scare us, not to frustrate us. It's something I haven't even talked about yet. Certainly not to divide us. This book does often conversation around this book is often a source of division because we get hung up on little details rather than realizing the main thing, that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I can't overstate this point. It's not the revelation of, hey, here's how your doctrine should be. Here's the millennial view you should have. Uh, here's what you should think about the rapture. Here's what you should think about the tribulation. Here's what you should think about the antichrist. Here's what you should think about your worldview and your political systems that are going on at work all around you today. No, it's, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He speaks to all of those things, but he is the center point of the story. And if this conversation or any conversation around this book leads brothers and sisters in Christ to actual division, I'm not saying you can't disagree. It's fun to have a good conversation, a good disagreeable conversation with someone you have a relationship with. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where you just have a healthy debate. Hey, here's what I think. Here's what you think. Um, Maybe we're both wrong. Maybe we're both right. Uh, Who knows, right? But we enjoy having those conversations. Those are fine. But when it leads to genuine division within the church, we've missed the point. We've totally missed the point. God's word was never meant to divide. And especially this word written to encourage the church. In verse 3, the end of the introduction, uh, we have a beatitude. Blessed is the one who. That's what a beatitude is throughout Scripture. Uh, the most famous, of course, the beatitudes that start out Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, but this is one of, guess how many in Revelation there are? Seven. Ding, 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 if you were thinking that. Uh, we're going to get, get used to that number. It's repeated throughout this book. It's the Greek number of completion. Uh, this is the first of seven Beatitudes sprinkled throughout the book, most of them happening in chapter 14 and later. Um, but we have it here in chapter 1. And you ought to take heart even in this Beatitude. Let's listen to what it says. Blessed is the one who, let me read it again, reads, reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear 
and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So even by reading this out loud, we, by God himself, are being pronounced as blessed. It's pretty cool, right? Just by reading this together. You see, it's a, an apocalypse, a revelation. It's a word of prophecy, things that are going to happen and what God says. And the book of Revelation is also a letter, like many New Testament letters. It was written towards specific individuals. We have those churches named in the passages coming through chapter 3. Uh, we have those churches named uh, exactly for who they were and where they were. And so this was a circular letter, meaning that John was going to write it, and either he or somebody else, probably somebody else, would take the letter and then travel in a big circle. And if you kind of plot out these different points of these churches on the map, it makes one big circle in the Asia Minor area. Um, and they would travel the book around and, and read it in each, for each church in each city and read it aloud, probably in one setting. And so as we read this aloud, we're joining with the saints of old, and hearing this story of God, the story of God's victory, the story of what's going on behind the scenes. And just like it was then, and just like it says at the end of verse 3, the time is near. Now, one hang-up that a lot of modern folks have with Revelation and with Christians in particular who believe in the, in, in the Holy Spirit and inspiration of Revelation is words like this, the time is near. Because you all know that this book is coming up on 2,000 years old. It's a long time. And the human mind would tell you, well, soon would be faster than 2,000 years. Soon, for us in our very fast-paced culture, there's really no such thing as soon. In the contemporary culture, it's now, right? Like, I don't want you to move out of my way soon. I want you to move out of my way now. Can I get an amen for those of you on the highway at any time and you want the person that's in the left lane going 55 miles an hour to get out of the left lane? Can I get an amen from anybody on that one? You don't want them to move out of the way soon. You want them to move out of the way now, immediately, like five minutes ago. Not soon. And so when we think of soon, we are in our microwave culture where everything has to be done immediately. Uh, again, I always think of that, that, that commercial, you know, where you're talking about getting money that somebody owes you. I want my money, and I want it now. You know the commercial that I'm talking about, right? People screaming that over and over again. Is it J.G. Wentworth or something? Yes, you remember the commercial. Because um, we want everything immediately. But what if you could look at time through a different perspective? Let's say you could look at Tom from the perspective of someone who breathed the stars into existence. Someone who wove every human strand of DNA that's ever existed together in their mother's womb. Let's say you could look at Tom from the perspective of someone who literally says in his own book, a day is as unto a thousand years for the Lord. Maybe soon should have a different connotation then for all of us. And maybe instead of trying to put God on our time schedule, which is such a modern American invention, we should instead allow God to exist on his own time schedule. Soon, in the span of eternity, could be a couple thousand years. 
soon in the span of eternity could be a lot longer than that. And if you think I'm talking out of sorts, it's not just Christianity that would say that. If you talk to just an agnostic, atheistic scientist who wanted to talk about how old the earth is, they would say that mankind, and our particular, since we've evolved into the men that we are now, that we are fairly new, right? Compared to everything else that's ever existed, they would say that we are a relatively new species found upon the earth. They would even use that language. Now, again, I'm not saying I believe in any of that. I'm just throwing that out there because we're not the only ones who say we need to take a bigger span of what it means to see time for what it really is. What God is saying and what Jesus was saying in the Gospels when he talked about the parable of the ten virgins with the lamp and how they should always be ready, when he talked about how the, the end would come like a thief in the night, what Jesus meant and what the Holy Spirit continues to mean through these words of John is that we should always be ready. We should always be vigilant. Because from our perspective, the time may or may not be soon, but it is imminent. And it could come at any moment. And we ought to be prepared, not just out for ourselves, but we ought to have a sense of urgency for those outside the faith so that the bad parts of this story might not be a reality for them. You see, there's three audiences for Revelation. The immediate context, the seven churches, their members in Asia Minor during Roman occupation and persecution. Every generation, that's, that's number one. Second, every generation of the church since then, perhaps including our own. And then the third audience is the end, those who are on the earth at the end of times. It means something for all of us to think that this is just like the back of your Bible, and we could read the last couple of chapters at funerals, and the rest of it, we'll just save that for whoever's last. It's to totally miss the value of God's Word that it is directly applicable to each of us today. God has something to say to you today through the word in Revelation. This is the point of it all. Revelation is written by Jesus, about Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. It is all about him and nothing else just like everything else in existence. Scripture I allude to a lot is Paul in Colossians when he says all things are made by him and through him and for him, speaking about Jesus. He is the center point of the universe, of all time and space. He is the hinge point of where everything finds its meaning, Jesus and Jesus alone. Why in the world do we need to get bogged down in all of the details of this book, which we're going to talk about. But why do we need to get so bogged down in them that we sit in our room and worry? How many of you, when you were children and the first time you heard about the story of Revelation, you thought, oh my goodness, that's scary. I hope the Lord tarries until I get married first. Does anybody remember having that? I remember having that exact conversation with my middle sister. She would say, I want Jesus to come back, but I got to get married first, right? Like it's one of the things uh, that, that Christians are, are, are famous for saying. Like we want Jesus to come back, but there's so much in my life that I want to get done before he does that. And so we get worried and we get scared about the day coming and we, we get frightened 
Why in the world would we get bogged down in that when this book is really just another example of how Jesus is in control and how much he loves you? And guess what? The one who's in control, the one who loves you, the lamb who laid down his life for you is also the lion of Judah who is going to come on a white horse and conquer in a way that has never been seen before, to lay waste to all that is evil, to all that might come against us, so that no matter how bad things to get, things seem to get, we must know that the rider on the white horse, who was also the lamb that bled and died, is coming for each and every single one of us, and he's coming to put our enemy at rest once and for all, to cast him into a lake of fire from which eventually he will never come back out of. This is the story of the Revelation. This is not some frightening story. Not for us. Not for those of us who are children of the King. Can I get an amen from somebody in the house this morning? It is written for us that we might take hope, that we might believe, and that we might be confident in the God who wins, who has extended that victory to us. Oh man, the next time you're singing victory in Jesus and you're just kind of ho-humming through the song, may you remember that you're singing about the conqueror on a white horse. May you remember that you're singing about the one who word will come out of his mouth like a double-edged sword and will lay waste to all the lies that the enemy has tried to throw against us. May you remember whose victory we're celebrating. Ah, oh, victory in Jesus. Yes, that is what we're about. Victory to those who stay fast to the message, to those who will put their faith in him and in him alone. Here is what I think our misconceptions about Revelation, our preoccupation with all the different end times kind of stuff tells us about our culture, even our church culture. And to me, this in itself is a frightening thought. It is this, for whatever reason, Jesus isn't enough for us. For whatever reason, we need to add the, the Hollywood special effects and explosions to make the story more interesting. Really? We really need to add to the story to make it more interesting? The one who breathed stars into existence came and lived in human flesh, human flesh that he sacrificed for your sake. And then guess what? When that flesh was dead and behind a stone to rot forever, somehow, three it became resurrected from the grave, never to die again, a power that he has passed on to each of us. That's an interesting enough story. We don't have to soup it up with Arnold Schwarzenegger and special effects. We can let this story be what the story is. It is a celebration of who Jesus not only will be, but who Jesus is today. This story is written by Jesus, about Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. It's not frightening. It's not confusing. It should not be division-causing. Instead, we ought to respond as John does several times throughout the vision. It's one of the interesting things about this revelation. That time and time again, right when you think it's about to reach the fever pitch and be over, there's a pause. And John's taken into the throne room of heaven to worship alongside the saints, alongside unbelievable creatures who we'll get to, alongside all of creation to worship this Jesus, to worship this God. I read a book a long time ago over how that's actually the whole point of Revelation. It's a book about worship. It's a book about the king, what he has done, what he is doing, and worship should always be the response 
Man, we'll get into the end time stuff. You can't talk about prophecy without talking about that. But I want to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing, Jesus wins. And those who follow him get the victory by default. That's pretty awesome. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to studying more of it. And I hope that you are as well. Let me ask you a question, though, before we move on next week. Is Jesus enough? Because we do that in the way we interpret this book or misinterpret this book. But we do that in our lives, too, right? Well, I've got Jesus, but I need, I need family, or I need career, or I need money, or I need fame and notoriety. I need the approval of others. I've got Jesus, but I, I need security. I've got Jesus, but, but I need to be liked. I've got Jesus, but, but I need to have peace. Jesus is all of those things, by the way, but Jesus himself is enough. He is the God who is more than enough. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, his grace is sufficient for us. His power is perfected in our weakness. Is there any part of your life this morning? And maybe you're living like Jesus isn't enough in your career, in your relationships. Because even though I'm a church pastor, I can tell you this. You and Jesus is enough. Do you need to come to a building once a week to really be saved, to really experience Jesus? No, you don't. Now, I believe you fully experience Jesus when you're in his community in a way that you don't when you're on your own. But if you were lost on a desert island and all you had was the Holy Spirit, that's enough. If all you have is Jesus, you have enough. What else are you putting in front of him that maybe you need to take down? Is Jesus enough? During our time of invitation this morning, I want you to dwell on that reality, to pray, God, to reveal areas of your life where you need to reach him at the center because he is the point of everything. Ask him to reveal things to you that you put ahead of him, that you think you need more than him. And again, ask yourself the question, is Jesus enough? Not theoretically, but the way that you live, does your life say that Jesus is enough? Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. After I do that, our band is going to lead us in one final song. And as we worship together one last time, the lion who is the lamb, let us reflect over that question. Is the one we're singing about really enough for us? If not, what do we need to change? Father, we thank you for being here with us this morning. God, we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit literally among and within us even now. And God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, God, you would place in the hearts of everyone who calls us to save God a sense of, of peace in you that you are enough, God, that you are enough to see them through whatever difficulty that they're in. God, that you are enough to be with them in their career struggles. God, that you are enough to be with them in the midst of a broken relationship. God, that you are enough to be with them in the midst of, 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 of sickness or illness. God, that you are enough 
God, may we lean on you. May you remind us that you are the God who is enough. God, you are good. You are more than enough. You are more than sufficient. We celebrate you. We thank you for the victory that is coming and that we even have today through your Holy Spirit. And God, you get all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. 